Hello and welcome to the Trips and Global on Wheels podcast hour. I'm your host, Ming Canaday. Trips and Global on Wheels is focused on sharing resources and insights into disability advocacy, fitness and health, and accessible travel. Our mission is to build a community of healthy, worldly, and informed advocates. Each week on our podcast, we interview someone with a disability or someone whose work advances the disability rights movement, both locally and internationally. Jeff Meir, welcome to the Tracing Global on Wheels podcast hour. We are very happy to have you here today. Hi, Ming. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So, Jeff Meir, U.S. Office of Humanity and Inclusion. Uh, Meir comes to Humanity and Inclusion from Public Health Institute, where he served as the Special Advisor for Global Health Policy and Development, coordinating 18 global health programs, conducting congressional and administration advocacy for global health and creating new global health initiatives, including a focus on non-communicable disease prevention. Jeff entered the U.S. Foreign Service in 1986 with overseas postings in China and Germany. Back home in Washington, D.C., he specialized in human rights and humanitarian issues. Jeff then became the founding program officer for peace and security at the United Nations Foundation. Later, he became the executive director of the the U.S. Association for UNHCR, where for five years he led efforts to raise awareness and funds on behalf of the U.N. Refugee Agency. Wow, it looks like you have some amazing work experience, and I understand that you have three decades of international experience helping marginalized groups. Where does your passion for helping marginalized groups, such as individuals with disabilities, come from, Jeff? Thanks, Ming. Um, I really appreciate that sort of framing of my career. Uh, I I believe that most of my career really has focused on international work with, as you say, an emphasis on marginalized groups. And I, I think it came from my family background, honestly. Uh, my family were all immigrants. Uh, they weren't referred to as refugees, but they were all immigrants in the early part of the 20th century to the United States. And I always was aware that we were um, welcomed into the United States as outsiders. Um, Mm -hmm. But the opportunities that we had to assimilate in the United States uh, were not always simple or easy but they were available and they've allowed me to do what I do today. So how did your skills, I see that you were a foreign service officer in China and in Germany, and that you're also fluent in both of those languages, Cantonese, I see, that's great. How did your skills that you learned from being a foreign service officer in those two countries helped you with your work at uh, Humanity and Inclusion? How does it make you a better executive director? There is excellent training available to people who join the U.S. Foreign Service. Um, It includes a whole uh, variety of things depending upon the job that you're selected to do. And in my case, I was selected to be an administrative officer. So I learned a a lot of skills um, through the Foreign Service, including about uh, uh, human resources, um, management of financial resources, uh, uh, management of uh, programs, and uh, 
I also uh, got an appreciation for logistics, which it turns out is very, very important in the world of international development and relief. And uh, what's even more amazing is that you just totally immersed yourself once you're in those environments. So you speak French, German, Cantonese, English. How does being multilingual in all these languages give you an advantage for this position? They hope. <laughs> <laughs> Of course I can. I always found languages to be very uh, easy to learn. I began learning languages in high school, and I uh, was actually a, a French language major in college. So I uh, want to give a shout out to all the listeners of Traipsing who are language uh, proficient, and especially those who consider studying languages. It uh, has been a great advantage to me over the course of my career, and I find that um, learning languages not only is a bridge to better productivity in the workplace, it's also a bridge to um, developing good relationships. I'm particularly proud of my Cantonese language uh, ability because I was one of the very few consular officers at the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou who spoke Cantonese. And as a result, I was able to connect much more easily on a variety of different topics with the people I came in contact with when I was there. You may notice that um, the time period that I was in China was a particularly sensitive one. I was there uh, just prior to and during and after the Tiananmen Square um, events. And so uh, our ability to talk to people in the street about what was going on in China at the time was a very, very useful um, ability. And I, I'm sure that when you're interacting with the locals, they're also very surprised and welcome the opportunity to communicate with a, a Lao Wai, a foreigner. So you have an incredible background, as we read earlier. Why did you choose HI over all the other organizations to work at? What made you believe in HI? I think that everything that I have done in my career really led me to HI. Um, and, and that goes to the question of what HI actually is. It is a very diverse group of professionals, more than 3,000 of them, of us, who work uh, across roughly 60 countries on a variety of different things. And of course, uh, one of the most important is helping people who, uh, have, who live with disabilities. Um, I, uh, had been exposed to this work uh, serving on the board of the organization before I became its executive director. Mm. And, and so I, I learned a great deal about uh, humanity and inclusion, which is, of course, the new name for uh, our organization. For 35 years, it was known as Handicap International. We can talk about that later. Helping people with disabilities, or not helping them so much as allowing people, working with people with disabilities so that uh, they can achieve their full potential in society, really um, was something that I, I came to rather late in my career. Other times in my career, I had worked uh, very specifically on issues of gender. Uh, my uh, time at the State Department included working um, on the uh, Fourth World Conference on Women, the United Nations Conference in Beijing, uh, where I was part of the delegation and worked uh, to improve the situation of women 
all over the world. And then I also had uh, a, a lot of time working on refugee issues, acting as uh, the executive director of the U.S. Association for UNHCR. So I really was exposed to a lot of different types of people in vulnerable situations. That is really the background, I think, that prepared me the most for this job. As I look at the thread, you know, of your career, it certainly aligns with your background. And I, what really interests me during the early parts of you, your career, um, you also worked for Reader's Digest and Psychology Today. So how do you weave that into your HI story? I think that writing is a very important part of every job. And I was fortunate to have an opportunity at the beginning of my career to really hone my writing and my editing skills. Um, and one thing you learn as an editor, I was just talking with a young person the other day about this. Um, you have to be willing to accept and take on board constructive criticism from a variety of different sources. And so I learned very early on that it's important to write with clarity and to be able to uh, write to persuade. And it is rare, if impossible, to come up with something that is unique and that is not uh, a product of several different hands. So I'm very proud of the work that I did as a journalist because while it had my own voice, it was also uh, working with a lot of different people to achieve a goal. Uh, that was true in writing for magazines. It was also true in the book that I wrote. Um, I could not have done what I did on my own without help. And you know, you're right. Writing and editing is so crucial in every every field. So that was a good uh, foundation to build on. So moving on to humanity and inclusion now. So I see that HI not only focuses on individuals with disabilities, but also other marginalized groups. Could you summarize HI's mission to us briefly and tell us what other marginalized groups it serves? I think it's uh, important because. Um, HI really does three different types of work and different people know different things about us so I always talk about it that way. Um, the most famous uh, part of our work uh, really relates to um, uh, our work empowering standing beside people with disabilities so that they can achieve their full potential and we do this uh, through a series of activities we call inclusion. Um, inclusive health is certainly a basis for every uh, person um, who has a disability, making sure that um, as they are born and enter into life and proceed through the life course, uh, everyone, including people with disabilities, has access to, to quality uh, health care. Uh, we believe that people with disabilities should always have access to education opportunities. And so we work very, very hard to make sure that people with disabilities can go to school. Uh, and once they get to school, they have teachers who are capable of teaching them that there's curriculum available for them, that their classrooms are fully functional for people with disabilities. We believe that people with disabilities should also um, be employed. And we know that uh, uh, this is a tremendous problem in many countries for people with disabilities. 
But we know also that it's relatively straightforward to provide opportunities for people with disabilities to uh, uh, be employed using some very simple and easy accommodations. Um, so we are very used to working with both people with disabilities and employers to create opportunities. We also believe that people with disabilities, like everyone else, have the right to vote uh, and participate in civil society. And we believe that people with disabilities should be able to organize and participate in social life. So these are the activities we call inclusion. Um, as well, we, uh, we are famous because we have always worked in the field of uh, mine action. When I say mine action, I mean landmine action. Um, and we really uh, have been working on this since the very beginning of our organization. We believe uh, that uh, landmines have caused an incredible uh, amount of uh, disability in the world and unfortunately uh, mortality. And so we have long been champions of a ban on landmines. Some people will know that um, humanity and inclusion was awarded part of a Nobel Prize in 1997 for our work on the international campaign to ban landmines. And in addition to that, we are one of the few non-governmental organizations that actually works to remove landmines from the earth where they're located. We work also very actively with victims of landmines so that they can return to uh, productive lives and uh, a productive place in society. Um, and uh, so mine action is the second of the three areas of our focus. And mm -hmm. our third area is in emergency response. So emergency response includes responding to everything from natural disasters, uh, tornadoes, volcanoes, tsunamis, um, any sort of natural disaster, flooding um, is also uh, something we respond to. Um, and we also respond to uh, man-made disasters in the sense of uh, civil strife uh, and um, uh, the, what causes people to flee uh, from persecution. So uh, the drivers of the refugee crisis. Um, and in this, what I mean by this is that we are very actively working in refugee camps in dozens of countries, um, uh, whether the refugees have fled because of uh, a natural disaster or a fear of persecution. Wow, some amazing work for sure. So our next question is, um, what sets HI apart from other international disability organizations? You know, you've grown very quickly and, and broadly too. You're in 60 locations around the world. What is HI doing differently that others should emulate? Yeah, I think that HI is, uh, is really a, a leader in a couple of different technical areas. I think, uh, for one, we have almost four decades of experience in working on rehabilitation in uh, locations where this is quite difficult to find. Um, 
rehabilitation is, of course, uh, people with disabilities recognize that rehabilitation is an essential part of um, health services. And in fact, it, it should be a part of global health work globally. However, it really is not. And I, I think that's one area that HI really excels in. We, we make sure even in situations where rehabilitation is not part of the standard health services provided either through a government or through the private sector, that, that we make those services available to people with disabilities. I think this is clearly an area where we, uh, we stand out. A second area that we are well known for is ensuring that both in terms of preparation and response to emergencies, we have capacity to ensure that people with disabilities are included um, so that uh, programs that um, prepare for emergencies and programs that respond are inclusive for people with disabilities. This is really um, rare in the humanitarian space. I can tell you from having worked uh, for many years, many organizations like to think that they have the capacity to work with people with disabilities in humanitarian crises. And when it comes down to it, they really don't. Oftentimes, humanity and inclusion is called upon after a crisis to help fill in where others are um, unable to provide services, but we absolutely uh, do it from the get-go. Can you elaborate on what this inclusiveness and working with individuals with disabilities look like on the ground? Sure, I think that uh, in terms of, um, we use what we call a, a twin track approach. So first of all, we work to ensure that you know, national laws, international standards match long-term goals that we have in terms of both the before, during, and after a crisis. So that would include building the capacity of um, organizations that serve people with disabilities, we call them DPOs, um, and making sure that countries uh, um, fulfill their obligations under agreements like the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But also we work uh, in, in the second part of our twin track approach is to actually get the job done in the field. And so all of our teams, our emergency teams, um, are well connected to organizations of persons with disabilities. We consistently work with DPOs uh, to make sure that they are included in emergency prepar preparations. And then we consistently uh, connect with um, organizations that serve people with disabilities in provision of service. So we make sure no one is left out. Mm -hmm. Our belief, our belief, we firmly believe in the, uh, the, the saying, nothing about us without us applies to every person with disability who finds himself in a crisis. It should be possible for a person with disabilities to look at a humanity and inclusion response and understand that we have thought about, planned for, and included people with disabilities in every element. 
-hmm. And this, this carries through from our relief work into our development work because we almost always follow our relief work with development projects. Of the countries that we're in, most of them we've been in for decades. And it may be that we started working in a country because of a, of a, a humanitarian crisis, but often we remain years later to ensure that people with disabilities and other vulnerable people can achieve their potential. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, elaborating on that. Those tangible and specific examples of how HI helps people with disabilities abroad. There are lots of examples that I can give. I, I, uh, for example, I was recently in um, Mali, where we, uh, about a decade ago, humanity and inclusion um, noticed that there were very, very few opportunities for people with disabilities to have rehabilitation. Um, and even in the capital city of Bamako, it's very difficult to find uh, rehabilitation, even uh, from the private sector. So HI, uh, working with some partner organizations, including a local hospital, um, set up one of the first rehab units in the capital city of Bamako. And we uh, trained the staff, we supplied the equipment, we even outfitted the building um, so that it could be used as a center for um, rehabilitation for anyone um, in Mali. We worked on that uh, directly for about seven years until we felt that the conditions were appropriate. And we then turned over the entire facility to the hospital and the government of Mali. So that facility is operating today. Um, and it provides one of the few places in the country where people with disabilities can go to receive rehabilitation care. Um, that's a good example of the kind of work that HI will do in a country. We like to uh, go to places where there is extreme need to set up what we hope are state-of-the-art services to train the local um, individuals, the local staff in maintaining and continuing those services and then to leave because we believe that the ultimate goal of all of this should be to leave systems and professionals in place that can operate by themselves on their own for for a long time. Wonderful. Next, we're moving on to you know opportunities of advancement for people with disabilities. What are the best tools we can provide to individuals with disabilities for future success, regardless of where they live in the world? HI uh, works uh, to improve the inclusion of people with disabilities across a broad range of thematics. And uh, this begins at birth. Um, because we know that uh, actually begins before birth because uh, children, including children with disabilities, um, are best able to cope with everything life has in store for them if they're healthy. And the best way to ensure that uh, children are healthy is to make sure that pregnant moms are healthy. So we believe in uh, the full life cycle of health care for people with disabilities. Um, and beginning, as I say, before birth, but uh, ending um, not 
ending ending at the end of life. Uh, so healthcare is an essential um, part of living a an enabled life, and so we work to make sure that people with disabilities have access to quality healthcare uh, throughout the life course. We also believe that um, people with disabilities must be given access to um, schooling. And so uh, what this means is that um, children with disabilities have to have opportunities to leave their homes, get to school, enter school, participate fully in classes, work with teachers who are trained on uh, uh, inclusion, and work with curriculum materials that are um, specific to uh, use by people with disabilities. So we know that, that um, inclusive education is not simply making sure that uh, classrooms have ramps. That is an important component, but it is, it is by far not the only one. We have to ensure that transportation is available. We have to ensure that uh, schools are uh, physically set up in a way that allows uh, uh, children with disabilities of all kinds to use the facilities. This means bathrooms. This means hallways. This means doorways. Um, it also means that uh, teachers are trained in working with children with disabilities. Um, and often, uh, uh, teachers with disabilities themselves are included in education efforts and we know that curriculum is very important inclusive curriculum that shows uh, children from very early ages that people with disabilities are part of our lives and uh, are part of our society is absolutely essential to ensuring that inclusive education really works we um, then uh, believe that people with disabilities um, should be given the right to um, find and keep jobs. Um, and the way this can happen is HI works together with employers and people with disabilities to match skills with jobs. We make sure that employers know there is a, a very simple and easy way to include people with disabilities that doesn't cost a lot of money uh, necessarily, but will improve the um, uh, the overall workforce in in any employer. And we also make sure that the people with disabilities have the skills that employers need by um, uh, doing surveys of employers to make sure that we know what skills are being looked yeah, for. So it sounds like education is a, a very key component to obtaining those employment opportunities as so well. My next question is how can individuals with disabilities help themselves play a larger role in society in advocating for their own rights and equal access to opportunity, especially for those who've already, you know, are at an, at an adulthood age they are considered to be adult um, with the skills that they do have? That's a great question, Ming. I, I, I think that people with disabilities absolutely have every reason to participate fully in civil society. And it's important not just to get laws on the books to make sure that 
people with disabilities are treated equally to everyone else, but it's important to make sure that those laws are enforced and that the regulations that governments put forward to implement those laws are fair and that they accomplish what the laws are seeking to uh, provide. For example, more than 170 countries have ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. So we know we could expect that in more than 170 countries, governments are taking steps to ensure that people with disabilities can vote, can organize, can participate in civil society. And yet, we know that that is not the case. We know that in dozens of countries, people with disabilities, despite the fact that their governments have signed this important convention, do not have the ability to participate. In some cases are blocked from voting. In other cases can't get to the polls. In still other cases they're stopped from organizing or prevented from um, speaking out publicly on issues that matter to them. And so it's important that HI work alongside organizations of persons with disabilities to help empower them, to make sure that their voices are heard, to um, enable them to reach out to their government officials and demand the rights that their governments have already agreed Yeah, to. great point. So I want to touch on the theme of collaborating with, with international organizations. So um, you've been involved on the international front, working with various organizations, Public Health Institute, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UN Foundation, to just give a few examples. You've worked with them to advance issues to improve livelihoods for marginalized groups for decades. What is the key to collaborating and working with a, with such a not wide network and such a diverse group of people? What is the key to working with global leaders and governments in advancing, say, disability rights issues? I think that there is a broad recognition at the international level. In fact, more and more uh, a recognition that people with disabilities aren't just um, a group that can be assumed. Um, that they actively must be included in every phase of every topic. Um, you find this uh, much, much more significantly these days at the United Nations in large institutions like the State Department, um, like USAID, um, in diverse places than you ever did when I was starting out my career. And I'm not really talking about just um, uh, physical accommodations. I'm talking about uh, organizations, agencies, entire bureaucracies that understand having people with disabilities at the table must be part of every process. I see it very clearly um, in the way that large United Nations meetings are organized. I see it as well uh, within the U.S. government by, for example, the creation of uh, the position of uh, senior advisor on international disability issues that was done at the um, uh, under the the Obama administration. I see it as well in uh, places like USAID, where there is a strong um, and active uh, disability policy that has been in place for about 15 years. So um, I think uh, 
We're seeing it even in places where I never imagined I would see it before. Several weeks ago, there was, uh, I think for the first time ever, a meeting in the United Nations Security Council that was on the um, inclusion of people with disabilities in humanitarian circumstances. Now that is, that is something that had never before taken place, uh, but uh, is a real indicator of how seriously this issue is taken at the very highest levels of, uh, of governments, of international organizations and the United Nations. I, I think you're right in that, you know, the, the idea that disability rights are human rights and that you, they need to have a voice at the table as well. Um, I so, think- So may I, may I just add, I'm sorry for interrupting, may I just add that um, HI has been actively pushing um, a document that we think is terribly important on this subject. It's called the Charter um, for the Inclusion of People with Disabilities in Humanitarian Action. Uh, we put this forward at the, the summit on uh, the, um, this was at the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016 in Istanbul. And we already have dozens of countries and hundreds of organizations that have supported this charter. Uh, we think that it is um, a growing chorus of support for the inclusion of people with disabilities um, that embraces all different levels from the international to the national to the local level. And we're very proud yeah, of Yeah, that's great. Since we did talk about the UN um, Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, um, how has access for basic resources improved since then? Are you talking about um, access through the United Nations or just um, access generally? Just overall, that's... I mean, I can speak very specifically about HI in the United States. Uh, when I came into this job in 2015, our annual budget for work all around the world was something like $12 million. We were very proud of that. It, it was, uh, it's largely due to the generous support that we received from the United States government for the kind of work that we do. In 2018, our support here in the United States is about $29 million. So in just three and a half years, we have more than doubled the support that we are able to provide to people with disabilities and other vulnerable groups. I think that both in Democrat administrations and Republican administrations, we are seeing a growing level of support and we're very privileged to uh, have this support and to pledge it uh, to stand with our sisters and brothers with disabilities all over the world. Wow, so what do you think caused that increase in funding? I think it's progress at the UN level, but I think it's also the result of uh, lots of activism here in the United States. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to work with a talented uh, board of directors who um, include someone who you know very well and, and listeners of this podcast will recall uh, Judy Human. Uh, she joined the board of HI about a year ago and it's really because of people like Judy 
Um, and uh, uh, another founder of uh, HI, uh, a gentleman named John Lancaster, um, it's people like that who have really for decades been talking about disability that my work becomes much easier today. I am really standing on the shoulders of giants and uh, Judy Human, John Lancaster are two of the really great figures in our recent history as a country who've enabled us to get where yeah, we are. I definitely agree with you, especially knowing Judy personally. Her I mean, there is one thing that, uh, re you know, important thing that remains to be done. Mm -hmm. And I, I know you're well aware of this, but just to say it out loud, um, the United States is one of the very few countries on the planet that has not yet um, that has not yet ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. This is a gross oversight that should be corrected as soon as possible. And we, HI, considers this among our highest advocacy priorities to make sure that the United States, as soon as possible, joins the rest of the world in ratifying this international document. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, it, it is absolutely surprising and astounding that the U.S. is not not on the table with that. So with respect of thinking of your international work and then your position here in the U.S., what, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges still facing individuals with disabilities, both in the U.S. and overall internationally? And how can we work together at a local level, nonprofit, government level to overcome these challenges? Well, we are fortunate uh, to be located in the state of Maryland. And I, I say that because um, in the state of Maryland, as in lots of places in the United States, we have excellent leadership that is working hard to build support for people with disabilities. Uh, I work uh, very closely with the Maryland State uh, Department of Education, um, which uh, is developing uh, school-based and uh, uh, employer-based programs to assist people with disabilities really as an outgrowth of the Americans with Disabilities Act. That is not to say that the job is done. It's very clear in Maryland, in our country as a whole, that there is an enormous amount of work that we still must do to uh, reduce stereotypes, to uh, build support, and to build opportunity for people with disabilities. Um, HI's work is not as much focused today on uh, work inside the United States because while these, these, this is an important fight, we know that the opportunities for people with disabilities in countries outside the United States is a fraction of what is available here. And so we really focus our efforts uh, as much as possible on the places in the world that have the poorest track record um, on uh, inclusion of persons with disabilities. Um, the United States uh, is doing some things much better to help people with disabilities. Um, there are lots of places in the world that are not. And so we try to focus our efforts there. One of our last questions is, what are the major, just looking at back from your uh, work 
career, both um, involving individuals with disabilities and not just at the very general level, marginalized people. What major progress have you seen in your lifetime in terms of inclusion of people with various kinds of disabilities, mental, intellectual, physical disabilities in all facets of society? and what areas still need to be pushed forward. One of the, the areas that the world as a whole will have to come to grips with is the growing issue of um, disability related to mental health. It is uh, widely known that by 2030, the single largest cause of disability in the world will be mental health, primarily uh, depression. Um, and I believe that we are, as of as a, uh, a civilization, we are poorly equipped to deal with the challenges of mental health at the global level. I think that we have in some ways, and we are continuing to find better ways to work with people with disabilities uh, who have, for example, mobility issues or hearing issues or visual issues but i don't think we have really got a grip on how to work on such a broad scale with mental health issues and i think that is a, a clear area that um, we need a lot more research we need better statistics we need better means of dealing with what is going to be the single largest driver of uh, disability on the planet very, very well, the, soon. The mental health cases are definitely surprising, and I've heard it from multiple sources, the, the reasons for the for these um, are multiple. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up. Um, did you have any closing remarks, any last words of wisdom for our listeners or life model that you'd like to share? I would like to share the thought that this is a great big world that we live in, and we are all part of a a very dynamic and changing set of circumstances. I like the fact that your podcast focuses not just on what's going on inside the United States, which is important, but also on global issues. And I'd like to encourage all of your listeners to remain interested in what happens outside the United States. There are hundreds of millions of people whose lives are not so different from ours, who really could benefit from the wisdom that we have here in our country. And I encourage all of them to get engaged in some way with that larger world. That's a great ending. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Sure. I only know what it's like in America And shutting doors I don't think that's right Thanks for listening to another Trips and Global on Wheels Podcast Hour. Look for us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook where I post pictures of my travels, share videos of my fitness journey, and keep you updated on the latest wheelchair accessory must-haves. Tell others about our program. The more we can raise awareness about these issues, the stronger we can get as a community. At Trips and Global on Wheels, we aim to build a community of healthy, 
worldly and informed individuals with disabilities and disability advocates. That means we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send us an email at tgowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know about your favorite destinations for accessible travel. How do you stay fit to avoid chronic injuries? What language do you prefer to describe your identity as someone with a disability? We want to provide a platform for people to share and learn from each other. So send us your stories. If you have suggestions for future guests that you would like to hear on our podcast series, please leave them in the Contact Us section of our website or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Bye-bye.